0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the third and final lecture on gender equality. Thank you for joining me today. This lecture series has been a massive undertaking for me, but it was certainly well worth the effort. I learned a lot in the process of doing the lectures and feel a great sense of accomplishment to be contributing to the study of gender equality in Singapore. This being the third and final lecture, I wish to acknowledge the people who have supported me throughout. First, a huge thank you to IPS and especially to its director, Janadas Darwin, for awarding me this prestigious SR Northern Fellowship. Janadas, I know that you took a big risk to ask me, a civil society activist, to deliver these lectures. Believe me, I felt the weight of responsibility to be balanced and constructive. Thank you also to your IPS team who supported these lectures. Events team Zahida and Sealing, operations support Maslan, and public affairs Kaisen, Dewey, Minxian, and Yunus for organizing the series. And most of all, my deepest gratitude to my research assistant Fyakra McFadden, who hosted two of my lectures. Fiki, you were simply brilliant in providing me with the research, graphics, editorial and logistical support. The historian in you gave me greater insights and as a male feminist, your inputs have been invaluable. I shall really miss working with you. It does take a village and I am blessed to have gotten great inputs and emotional support from friends and colleagues through this journey. Robin, Shelley, Maggie, Carney, and Rebecca, I really could not have done these lectures without all of you. When we talk about gender equality, the first thing that often comes to mind is that it's a women's issue. The fight for women's rights Take for example, the Public Conversations for the Gender Equality Review. It's titled, Conversations on Singapore Women's Development. It is described as a national effort to understand Singaporeans' aspirations and ideas on how to further advance our women in Singapore. The unit in the Ministry of Social and Family Development that manages Singapore's compliance with CEDAW the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, is called the Office of Women's Development. I understand why that's the orientation. In a world where men dominate, and the default voice and perspective is usually male, women need safe spaces to share the truth and experience. Spaces where they find comfort and support when they have been abused, violated or unfairly treated. And where they can come together to push for a more gender equal world. This in fact has been AWARE's mission. As a feminist women's rights group, AWARE runs a women's helpline, counselling support groups and the Sexual Assault Care Centre. We've been focusing on the women's perspective as career women, family caregivers, single mothers, migrant spouses, mothers in low-income families, and survivors of gender violence. The work never ends. But we won't solve misogyny, gender discrimination, violence, and exploitation if, as a society, we don't deal with the issues that men face as men. My work has involved focusing on women and prior to this lecture series I hadn't really gone too deeply into understanding men's experiences. What is it like for men living in a world that expects them to be the breadwinner, to always be strong, powerful, self-reliant, stoic and dominant? The script for what it means to be a man in Singapore is fast changing. Driven mainly by women's empowerment and their expanded role in society. The change is good. We have to keep moving towards equal opportunities for all. The patriarchal system accords men with higher status, more power, money and opportunities But it comes at a very high cost and we need to understand what is it in the system that makes it hard for men to change, even though they may not find the situation ideal. Going forward, I hope that men will understand how patriarchy hurts us all, including men, and will want to join the gender equality movement. To grow beyond the constraints of patriarchy, men need encouragement and support. And in this lecture, I will focus on men and masculinity in Singapore. What are the norms that shape their psyche and patterns of behaviour? And then what we can do to support men to embrace a more gender equal mindset. And finally, I will talk about how we best educate and protect our next generation of men and women who are growing up in a hyper sexualized world there hasn't been much research on the topic of masculinity in singapore in fact that topic is fairly new in the world women's studies began much earlier because of the systemic operation of women. In 1949, Simone de Beauvoir's iconic study of women, the second sex, elegantly captured the women's condition in this one famous line, one is not born but rather becomes a woman. In other words, femininity is a social construct. Biology does not determine what makes a woman a woman. A woman learns her role from society. Simone de Beauvoir was way ahead of her time. The second sex went on to inspire generations of feminist work. And today, science has caught up. Brain scientists now understand that human brains are extremely plastic and malleable as babies our brains start off soft as clay and as we grow up our brains are changed by our life experiences jobs hobbies social messages that we receive repeatedly and over time these repeated actions and messages get wired into the brain's network Take girls, for example. The ping dolls that they play with. The fairy tales of princesses being saved by Prince Charming. The many messages girls receive to be sweet and agreeable. Mold and shape their brains. As de Beauvoir said, one is not born, but becomes a woman. So knowing that gender is a social construct has been extremely empowering for women. Women realized they could, and so they began to change the script handed down to them by society. And the main resistance to this change has been, and here's where the the Beauvoir's next most famous line comes in, The problem of women has always been a problem of men. To be clear, men themselves are not the problem. The problem is one of masculine norms, the social construct that makes men, men. So to borrow the words of the Beauvoir in the context of man, one is not born, but rather becomes a man. So what are the masculine norms that define men's lives in Singapore, that make men in Singapore men? If these norms are a problem, what needs to change? To set the stage, here's a video that Aware made about the gender messages that men and women receive Every single day. Don't cry. Stop crying. Don't be such a girl. Don't talk you back. not play soccer. Don't dress like a boy. Believe yourself. Are you a virgin? Guys are like that. Get used to it. What a slut! You need to lose you weight. You
1: gotta look pretty. Are you gay? Are you a virgin? Come on, be a man! Don't piss him off. Stop nagging. Be a better, be a better mom. Know your place. Does your wife earn more than you? Of course she
0: wants Women it! Women say no I'm when they do yes. It. Don't be Act such like a girl! Like a
1: what, what
0: the Of course she wants it. do dress like a boy. Are you gay? Don't cry. Don't talk too much. My name is Prashansa. I have short hair. People say I look a boy. And that's okay. I'm Theo. Sometimes I cry. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm Rajesh. I'm not ready to have sex yet. It's okay to wait. My name is Zubaida. I'm 48. I'm not
2: married. I love myself just the way I am.
0: As there isn't much research in this area, I carried out my own survey and interviewed a dozen men. They fall into three main groups, men who had not thought too much about gender issues, men who bucked the male stereotype, and men who have run support groups for men. My presentation in this section is based on whatever research I could find, my own personal experiences, and these interviews. Although somewhat anecdotal, it does provide some good starting points for further discussion. Let's start with a definition of masculine norms. Masculine norms are beliefs that define what is acceptable and appropriate thoughts, feelings and actions for men. They are embedded in formal and informal institutions, nested in the mind and produced and reproduced through social interactions. They play a role in shaping men and women's often unequal access to resources and freedoms, thus affecting their voice, power, and sense of self. Globally, the work on masculine norms started only in the 80s, quite recently. A few psychometric measures have been created to assess the strength of these norms. And as far as I know, there is no research on the applications of these measures in Singapore. Here is a list of masculine norms from a well-established psychometric measure known as the Conformity to Masculine Norms Inventory, what psychologists call CMNI. There are nine norms on this list. The ones in the left blue box are more negative. They are often harmful to men and the people in their lives. They are emotional control, risk taking, power over women, playboy, which really refers to promiscuity or the idea that sex, you know, you have a lot of sex without feelings, violence, and having to present oneself as very heterosexual. They generally fall in the category of what people today think of as toxic masculinity. The other three norms, winning, self-reliance, and primacy of work, which means making work your first priority always, they're not toxic if they aren't taken to the extreme. For example, it's good to have a desire to win, but not to try to win at all costs. This list gave me a good way of making sense of the men's stories that I will be sharing today to show how these norms shape real men's lives and the effect it has on them and those around them. Let me first share the story of the man whom I know best and who I love and respect. My dad, Francis, passed last year just after his 83rd birthday. He was born in the late 1930s, just before the war. I think of him as the typical pioneer generation guy, hardworking, reliable, disciplined family man with conservative views. He married my mom, June, an intelligent, strong-willed, independent woman. Together they had me and my twin and my younger sister, Gender-wise, in the family, dad was outnumbered. Four women to one man, and four very strong women at that. If we don't count our domestic worker and our dog, who are also female. Dad was a good man. He loved his family, worked very hard to make sure that all his daughters had a good start to life. He loved sports, and he coached and mentored us his girls, to be competitive tennis and squash players. In terms of the conformity to masculine norms, inventory assessment, which I showed earlier, he would have scored very high on primacy of work, emotional control, and self-reliance. Dad took his role as breadwinner and protector very seriously. Work came first, always, and then the family. Outside work, Dad did spend a lot of time with the family. But most of our conversations when we were young were centered on school and tennis, and then later on our professional lives. So it was still very much about work, but our work. Sometimes we talked politics, but that could get a bit heated. He was extremely stoic, never talked about his feelings or problems, and didn't know how to connect with me and my sisters emotionally. Likewise, even though we loved and respected him, we weren't close to him. When dad retired at 60, he fell into a depression. Like many men, his life revolved around work. Without it, he was quite lost. The few friends he had were his colleagues. And after he retired, the friendships waned. So dad was depressed for a few years. For me, the saddest part of this story is that although we lived together in the same flat, I had no idea that he was having a hard time. We were just so disconnected. I only found out about his depression a few years later after my mother told me about it, at which point I was crushed. How could I be so blind and oblivious to my dad's pain and humanity? My dad did everything he was supposed to do as a good man, including suppressing his emotions and being self-reliant. Dad never knew this. I wish I had told him, but he is one of the reasons why I do this work championing gender equality. It breaks my heart to think that most men have to live as Dad did, locked in a prison of masculinity. I'm happy to say that this story has a good ending. Although Dad had many health conditions, he was blessed with longevity. Perhaps growing old, having nothing left to prove, And knowing we are all living on borrowed time helped him transform. He became a totally different man when he broke out of his masculine jail in the last 10 years of his life. He became comfortable with himself, laughed easily and was fun to be around. Every day was precious to him. And he made it a point to tell mom and his girls how much he loved us and how proud he was of us. He shared his reflections of life, including his regrets. And one sweet memory of dad that I will always keep in my heart is him lying on his bed, holding my hand, and telling me about his various trips to the oncologist. He would hold my hand for a long time, and I will forever feel my dad's loving touch. Dad passed away in his sleep, the way he wanted to go without bothering anyone. I believe dad died well with love and peace in his heart. This is an illustration of the prison prison of masculinity. Many men are still trapped in this prison. My dad was lucky He had the extra 20 years to find himself and to live a much fuller life. Not every man who is trapped in his prison of masculinity will have that chance. For those dads who are watching this and feeling like they might have some breaking out to do, please start right away. Just go to your kids, give them a big hug, and tell them, you love them. It won't be easy to break out in every aspect of men's life because the norms of masculinity are often reinforced by other men and by women and by the structures and the environment and policies of the world that we live in. Also, the rest of society has become very used to how men are. We just think, oh, boys will be boys, or men have egos, and leave it at that. But there are some glimmers of hope. I believe that change will happen once men begin to see how much they have to gain when they get out of their prison. And it's beginning to happen. I also hope that there will be more men's groups formed and that they will be active like the women's movement. Women's groups can't do this work for men, but you will have our full support. Let's move on to the theme of dominance and violence. Almost all the men that I interviewed spoke about dominance, over other men or boys. It was about having to be the alpha male, whether it was to be good in sports or studies or an officer in NS. One had to distinguish oneself and win friends that way. The pressure to prove manhood is constant because it's a game of dominance. You have to keep being better, stronger, faster, more effective. Successful than the next man. So it's non stop proving themselves over and over again. Women don't face the same pressures. And the dark side of this dominance is violence. And this came up much more than I had expected before I started my interviews. I was surprised and disturbed by the level of violence bullying, assault, pain and humiliation that boys and young men inflict on each other. This does show up in some statistics as well as in my interviews. I will share some stories and these are the stories that I can share in a platform like this. There were much more brutal stories that I heard. I'm sharing Tim's stories. By the time Tim was 14, he had a few incidents of harassment and bullying, which made his school life miserable. These are two of his stories. Trigger warning. For the next two minutes or so, I'll be sharing some pretty graphic stories which are necessary to illustrate the point. Also, Tim is not his real name. Tim attended an all-boys school When he was in secondary one, there was a well-known bully in his class. As a transfer student from another country, the bully was three years older and much bigger than all the other kids in class. One day, when Tim went to the toilet, this older boy, out of the blue, unsolicited, attacked Tim and stuck a finger into Tim's anus. It was painful and humiliating, but Tim did not report this incident to anyone. He says, it didn't occur to me that reporting was something I could or should do. Not to a teacher, not to my parents. It was a shameful thing that had to be brushed off or buried. Now Tim is not physically a wimpy kind of guy. In fact, He was a national school swimmer. He would go every day to Topayo Swimming Complex to train with other national swimmers. You know, doing the laps 5 to 6 km on school days and double that during holidays. Now, one day after a training session, when all the swimmers were cooling down, an older boy wrapped his legs around Tim in the pool, kept him in a lock and peed on him. It was not only an act of bullying, but a performance for the entertainment of that bully's clique. Tim was again humiliated. But again, there was nothing to be said about it. As Tim told me, it was a ragging that had to be endured. Incidents like this made Tim very uncomfortable with jock cultures and all male cliques that he saw around him. And as an adult, Tim would struggle with depression and rage and all the attendant problems of alcoholism and self-harm. He says, I don't think my depression can be fully attributed to childhood bullying and assault, but certainly those events played a major role In shaping my rather dim view of human society and a sense that one had to combat aggression with aggression. I'm grateful to Tim for sharing his stories of sexual assault and bullying. We don't hear these stories often and I've been thinking about that. I think men don't report these stories or seek help because such confessions would violate the masculine norms that real men don't show their hurt. They shouldn't cry. When faced with adversity, just suck it up and get on with things. And at 13, Tim was already well socialized as a young boy to be stoic and not to betray weakness. So I started to look at the situation in Singapore and found that we have a very serious school bullying issue in Singapore. A recent OECD study showed that 15-year-olds in Singapore experience more bullying than their peers in 52 other countries. We are the third highest after New Zealand and Latvia nearly 15% of Singapore students describe being frequently bullied. That's 1.5 in 10. What is more worrying and salient to this lecture is the high level of social pressure in schools to make boys conform to norms of masculinity, what we call gender policing. OS 2017 survey shows that 9 in 10 teenage boys face social pressures to be manly through teasing, harassment, bullying, and social exclusion. They were told to man up and to take it like a man. Those considered to have feminine traits were called sissy pondan, aqua, or gay. And boys who were victimized were four times more likely to commit violence against others. In other words, violence breeds violence. Peer pressure is a powerful influencer. A few men I interviewed said that they they were part of all male chat groups where some men would regularly send sexual messages or images that objectify women. These WhatsApp chat groups are either professionally connected or former classmates or sometimes army mates. And some of the professionally connected groups were men, involved men at very senior levels of management. The interviewee said that although they themselves did not circulate these sexual texts or messages, neither did they call out this behavior. It's important to note that the men I interviewed were all decent, respectable, capable, and thoughtful men. And that's why I chose to interview them. And the three reasons, three main reasons that they gave for not taking any action was one, It's pointless, their speaking up would not stop this. Second, that they would lose social capital. Third, they thought it was probably harmless and that the guy who sent these messages were not really bad guys who would hurt women. They were quite sure that that was the case. Speaking up against toxic acts of masculinity is very difficult in a group setting. The person who steps up and calls it out risks losing his hard-won masculinity. Remember, they have to keep working at it. And it's been called precarious, meaning that it is hard to win and easy to lose. So they don't speak up. As for the idea that these locker-room exchanges are harmless, what do you think? Going back to brain science, the repeated locker-room banter shapes and moulds the brain. Even if men don't consciously think they have less respect for women as a result of hearing these kinds of conversations, Below their level of awareness, their brains are making associations. It's not harmless. So what is the link between toxic masculinity, bullying, and gender violence? All the things I've spoken about. Research has shown a close link between school bullying and gender violence. Young boys who engage in bullying were much more likely to engage in sexual harassment of the other sex as teenagers. Childhood bullying was also correlated to intimate partner violence among young adults and with domestic violence. It is also well established that the toxic masculinity norms of and this is what I had introduced earlier, violence, power over women, and emotional control are at the root of violence against women. So the implications are that to prevent or reduce gender violence, we must engage men and boys, we must try to reduce the kind of um, gender policing and bullying that happens in schools, And we must promote positive masculinity norms. And while there have been ad hoc campaigns like AWARE's White Ribbon Campaign, where men take a stand against gender violence on one day of the year, 25th November, the International Day to End Violence Against Women, there has not been any sustained work to engage men and boys. No lecture on masculinities in Singapore would be complete without an examination of national service or NS. It is also a relevant matter when it comes to promoting gender equality. Research carried out for AWARE by Quilt AI, an internet research company, showed that across the main social media platforms and they examine hundreds of uh, posts and messages they found that NS is the number one reason that men assert to oppose gender equality in Singapore so it's extremely relevant this section on NS is based on the limited surprisingly research that is available on NS and the accounts of men that I interviewed for this lecture. NS is the hallmark of Singaporean masculinity. It's the rite of passage that every Singapore boy, almost every Singapore boy goes through to become a man. The men that I spoke to described NS as a hyper-masculine experience. After all, it's designed to toughen up our boys and also to build bonds between males across ethnic and class divides. However, there are aspects of NS that bring out the more negative norms of masculinity. The exclusion of women, the use of homophobic and misogynic insults like gay, faggot, sissy, kunyang, And the constant shaming and humiliation by superiors for minor infractions creates an atmosphere that many people would describe today as toxic masculinity. This environment gives rise to blanket parties, which was a term that I learned and it is in the Singlish dictionary on the internet. It's a where it's a situation where uh, the group turns against one soldier who is perceived to be the weakest link or is disliked. They throw a blanket over him and they rain blows on him. Also, it um, results in, a, in, in an environment where soldiers talk about sex a lot, like sharing prurient details about sexual intercourse with their girlfriends, or organising trips to Geylang with their buddies after booking out. And here is how my youngest interviewee, who is still in NS, described how men interacted. Predatory behaviour is almost encouraged. Everyone's favourite subject is girls. Dates, Tinder matches, looking up women on Instagram. He says that creeping is also quite blatant. If anyone mentions they have a sister, the inevitable follow-up is something along the lines of, is she pretty? Can I get her number? Is she single? Does she have a boyfriend? It's a kind of image of man as an uncontrollable monster who just needs sex, and it's constantly normalised. I find it really disturbing The rite of passage of manhood in Singapore is one that involves such toxic masculinity norms and practices. It's not just about women. Unhealthy masculine norms are also linked to suicide, crime and substance abuse. Did you know that men's suicide rate is double that of women's in Singapore as And this is true in most other countries. Ms. Wong from the Samaritans of Singapore explained that this is largely due to the fact that men tend to compare themselves to a standard masculine role that emphasizes strength, independence and risk taking behavior. They feel continued pressure to solve issues on their own and to suppress feelings of distress. And in Singapore, and again, in most other countries, 83% of drug abusers are men, and 90% of inmates are men. Research has shown that the higher rates of crime and drug abuse by men are also linked to masculinity norms. Masculinity's expert Michael Flood says, The rate of violence and crime committed by men reflects very long-standing dominant traits of masculinity that come from how we socialize men and boys to dominate, to take risks and refrain from empathy. So, you know, we wonder why we've not looked at this issue more because it is a social issue and it's a public health issue. Understanding masculine norms and engaging with men and boys with this lens offers much potential for advancing gender equality, improving men's health, reducing crime and substance abuse rate. And knowing that masculinity is a social script that can be changed, there is much scope and need for changing negative masculine norms. Governments, parents, schools, workplaces, community groups, all have a role to play. I have three main recommendations as to what, from a policy level, we can do to take things forward in relation to engaging men and boys regarding gender equality and promoting positive masculinity norms. Masculinity norms affect men's development, their interactions with women, and their engagement in the family. So masculinity is both a part of the problem and the solution to gender equality. Thus, my first recommendation is for the government to commission a study on masculinity, men and boys, as part of the Gender Equality Review. We need to understand masculinity in Singapore. I've just done a very brief research, but we really need to understand this properly. And we need to understand its implications on gender equality, violence against women and men's health issues. The study should include an action plan on how we engage with men and boys to promote healthy masculine norms in Singapore. Areas that should be included in the study should include areas like equality in the family, intimate partner relationships, health and well-being. Now, many Western countries like the UK, Australia, Canada, US and organisations like the UN have now started to actively focus on men and masculinities. In 2019, the UK government commissioned an in-depth study on this and issued a report titled Changing Gender Norms, Engaging with Men and Boys. There are many interesting nuggets, findings and recommendations in the UK report, including these three. First, they found that a belief that some men and boys have about the entitlement to sex and to control relationships can lead to aggression when these ideas are challenged. Second, they found it was important to use a strength-based approach. For example, let's broaden the idea of masculine strength to include tenderness or caring for a child. Third, that there is no one masculinity. It has to be, as with feminism, an intersectional approach. We need to look at the masculine norms across religion, social class, sexual orientation, and aging men for the health issues. The Canadian government in 2018 set aside $1.8 million in order to engage groups and men on masculinity issues. At this point for Singapore, I think that a study on masculinity is the priority, but if there are resources, the study should also include a study on feminine norms. My recommendation two, for the government to initiate or support the establishment of dedicated support services for men. A few of the men I interviewed spoke about the need for specialized services to support men who are facing stress and challenges in their lives. Most men, and like most women, will go about in their own sort of merry way, living with the norms that they have been socialized to live with and and they've grown up with until it comes to a crisis. Um, And so a crisis could be going through a divorce or being caught for a sexual crime. And it is at these points that men then, you know, we can start to work with men on trying to make sure that they don't go back to these things. So it's important to have the service, and it should be designed to take into account masculinity norms and their aversion, men's not aversion to seeking help. So this recommendation, to, uh, which I've spoken to counsellors about, is to offer dedicated services like a men's line. Note, it's not a helpline men don't need help, coaching, not counselling, and men's groups, not support groups. So we need to design services to suit men's needs and name and market the services appropriately. The aim of the services is to provide a non-judgmental, non-shaming, hope-giving environment that acknowledges men's painful experiences. It will be a space where men can allow themselves to be vulnerable and not experience it as weakness or shame, where they can work through their vulnerabilities and discover strengths in themselves and hope for the future. And where they can gain healthy acceptance of the good men that they are instead of constantly being disappointed by not being able to measure up to unrealistic masculine norms a lot of masculinity is about being accepted by other men. Well-facilitated men's support groups have a lot to offer. Brian Tan, who is uh, the CEO of Dads for Life, shared about the excellent work that the organization was doing. Within the safe space of small all-male groups, men would share honestly about their parenting struggles and concerns. But as they shared about this, other issues that they haven't spoken about to anyone will come out. And uh, Dads for Life have more than 100 such men groups all over the island. The high number of Dads for Life groups is really a sign of the effectiveness for these supportive all-male groups. And we need a range of groups like this to support men on different issues. For example, groups for men contemplating divorce, dealing with their own infidelity and men facing abuse um, in the family and men with compulsive se- sexual fetishes. Right? My recommendation three is about national service. We should review national service to see how we can promote positive masculine norms and make national service, in the long run, gender equal. I know this is a major ask and will require a lot of consideration. Aside from the fact that this proposal would be a huge boost to promoting gender equality in Singapore and create positive masculine norms Uh, that have implications for public health and criminal justice, there are two more reasons to go down this path. First, our population is shrinking, and the number of male conscripts is set to decrease to about a third by 2030. And second, it may be a means for us to ensure that we have sufficient care workers to support the care needs of Singapore's ageing population. So I'm thinking of a national service that goes way beyond just military service. So this recommendation includes two possibilities. Option A, expand NS to include non-military service such as community, social work, or healthcare, and or option B, review basic military training or BMT, and, and any other aspect of NS to eliminate all unnecessary practices that promote unhealthy masculinity norms. Option A is not a new idea. My SR Northern predecessor, Ho Kuang Ping, suggested that in anticipation of a time when Singapore may in fact need women in military defense, we should take the first step of conscripting all women to do five months of healthcare or social care work. So like a little baby step. I think this is possible as a little baby step, but ultimately we should make NS totally gender neutral so that everyone, regardless of gender, can opt for two years of military or police or civil defense, community or healthcare and whatever other total defense areas that need people. The equal participation of women in NS will automatically make NS less toxically masculine. As for option B, some interviewees noted that the more permanent units that people were assigned to after their BMT had a less toxic culture, partly because there were some women in those units. They said that the military discipline still existed, but without the unnecessarily harsh practices to break the men down, which seemed to be the approach in BMT. This interviewee thought that this model, which focused on discipline and professionalism, should be followed for BMT as well. And now I would like to show a short video, something lighthearted, from IPS's 2012 scenario planning project called PRISM where they asked the question how will we govern ourselves in 2022 that's next year so you know this was just really to tickle the imagination of the participants in that earlier exercise please enjoy
1: for the finals next week of Singapore Sings, Here's another look at our contestants.
0: My name is Samantha.
2: I'm 22 years old this year. And I'm serving NS in the 22nd Division Explosive Disposal Unit.
1: With her dynamite vocals, this second year National Service Woman can be counted on for an explosive performance. One. Samantha has a cheerleading squad, led by boyfriend Ross who's just finished serving his NS at the PCF Sengkang Childcare Centre.
0: This is my teacher! Go, Go! I'll wait for you!
1: Will she realise her dreams? Go, go on to be the next Singapore Sings winner.
2: At first, I was worried that um, NS would be a roadblock for my journey to But then I realised that it's actually given me a lot of discipline to persevere. And... Um, now I just want to sing for Singapore.
0: This next part of the lecture will deal with youth, sex, and the internet. Pornography is now widely available on the internet. We don't know how widely it is used in Singapore. There are no studies about this. But a search on similar web for the top visited websites here showed that one adult site was ranked 11th ahead of Netflix, Reddit, and LinkedIn. What's alarming is that our boys are exposed to porn from an early age. Nine out of every 10 teenager, teenage boys between 13 and 15 watched or read sexually explicit materials in 2015 according to a survey done by touch cyber wellness and more than half of them intentionally sorted out some were exposed to it even before they started primary school in contrast only eight percent of girls less than one in ten were exposed to pornography either intentionally or by accident. What's also worrying is the type of porn that is available on the most easily accessible sites. This is a UK study which reviewed over 150,000 titles on the three most popular porn sites in the UK. It probably will not be so different in Singapore. This is what they found one in eight titles contain depictions of sexual violence the most common category of of sexual violence was sexual activity between immediate family members fathers and mothers being the main perpetrators the second category of sexual violence was physical aggression and sexual assault women being gagged choked or slapped and the third highest was images taken or uploaded without consent including revenge porn upskirting and images taken by spy cameras in the past there were concerns concerns that porn would lead to more Rape. There's no clear evidence of this. However, that does not mean that porn consumption and addiction is harmless. Let's examine what the research does show about the consumption of porn by men and boys. Most mass market pornography conveys the beliefs that sex is divorced from intimacy, and that's the you know the Playboy masculine norm. And that women are always ready for sex. And so this often leads to men being quite dissatisfied with their own sex life, which of course is a problem. Those who watch violent porn were also more than six times as likely to have engaged in sexually aggressive behavior and increased use of porn by adolescents predicted more sexist attitudes and perpetration of sexual harassment two years later. What should be our biggest concern is this, the fact that many young people are turning to porn as the default sex educator. A study of 18 to 24 year olds in the US found that a quarter of them listed porn as their most helpful source of sex information. Porn sex is really not like real sex, but they are using this as their education on real sex. Porn is not going to go away, it's pervasive so the only effective antidote is to put pornography into right context so that young people understand that what they see is fantasy and doesn't represent healthy consensual relationships humiliation shaming scare tactics don't work they drive porn watching behavior into the shadows thereby denying educators parents the opportunity to counter unhealthy ideas that porn may be seeding in young minds. What we need more than ever before is good sex education. So let's pause for a moment to consider. Whose role is it to carry out this education? Who should be the primary sex educator in Singapore? Is it the schools? Or is it parents? The Ministry of Education says parents are in charge. Their website says, as parents, you have a primary role in your child's sexuality education. No matter where they get their information from, you, the parents, are the best person to teach them what is right or wrong. Do parents actually live up to this role? No, they don't. A West 2018 survey showed that seven out of 10 youths did not talk to their parents about sex. Honestly, I have found very few youths who will talk to their parents about sex. A second survey with parents showed that parents knew or felt it was their responsibility to talk to their kids about sex, but only 50% of parents were comfortable To do so so given that many many parents don't know how to have frank discussions with their children schools should then play a bigger role let's look at how effective our school sex education program has been so far aware has been tracking this for many years and the feedback from youth has been consistently negative a 2019 article on moe's sex education program in today the newspaper contained this response from a student about the program they keep talking about abstinence and how we should not have sex it's not wrong but i think with young people the more you tell them not to do something the more we want to do it because we are that age to try out different things Another article in the well-known millennial website, The Millennials of Singapore, or MOSG, says that the MOE program is unrealistic. Teens are having sex, and it's silly for anyone to think otherwise. That makes it all the more crucial that teens are provided with necessary information to help them in making informed choices, rather than trying to prevent the impossible, i.e. teenagers having sex and living with the idealistic mindset that teens will abstain till marriage, schools should address the obvious the problem straight on. So it's time that sex education lessons started giving students answers to questions that they shouldn't be looking for on Google. What is MoE's stated approach to sex ed? This is what they say sex ed is about. Sexuality education in schools promotes abstinence before marriage and teaches facts about contraception, consequences of casual sex, prevention of diseases, and how to say no to sexual advances. It's basically pretty much about abstinence. Is abstinence before marriage realistic in Singapore today, considering that people here tie the knot much later these days? 29 for women and 30 for men. You are supposed to be abstaining until you are that age. AWARE's recent focus group discussions on sex education affirms the earlier youth views that sex school sex education is inadequate. They also shared that the topic of pornography is either avoided altogether or dismissed as taboo. And secondly, there isn't enough discussion about youth engaging in activities like sexting and cases where intimate photographs are shared without consent. One problem that we have is that there isn't much public data and research available. We have seen an increase in media reports on voyeurism, upskirting and non-consensual sharing of young women's intimate photos. Many of these involving incidents on campuses. And in the last four years, Aware Sexual Assault Care Centre saw a tripling of sexual violence cases facilitated by technology. So as part of the Gender Equality Review, I urge the government to initiate or support research to find out more about the sexual behaviour and the sex ed needs of our youth today. The research should include um, information on where youth get their sexual information, what sexual behaviours they are engaging in and at what age, what challenges they face in their sexual lives, especially in relation to porn, sexting, sexual exploitation. What are youth's values, skills and knowledge on sexual matters and their views on how school sex education programs can be improved? It is so, so crucial for the voices of the young people to be included in the creation of a sex education program that meets their needs. So the youth have said the sex ed program is inadequate to focus on abstinence, risk, and disease. And you know what? They are on the right track. The United Nations and the World Health Organization advocates for countries to provide comprehensive education, sex education, or what we call CSE, which go beyond abstinence-focused um, sex ed. Instead, CSE should focus on equipping young people with knowledge, skills, attitudes, and values that will empower them to realize their health, well being, and dignity, to develop respectful social and sexual relationships, and that will enable them to consider how their choices affect their own well being and that of others. They need to understand that this is protection for these young people for the rest of their lives, not just at a specific period where they are supposed to be, where they're younger. So to assist countries, the UN and WHO jointly issued a really useful document called the International Technical Guidance on Sexuality Education to help countries develop and implement comprehensive sex education. And this is what it says, and I quote. CSE should should be given on this basis. It empowers youth and gives them the right to choose when and with whom they will have any form of intimate or sexual relationships with responsibility of these choices and respecting the choices of others in this regard the choice includes the right to abstain to delay or to engage in sexual relationships the guide recognizes that sex education is meant to provide life skills abstinence is not a permanent condition in most people's lives and young people will soon need these skills when they become adults. Of course, it should be age appropriate. So what we tell someone at 12 is very different from what we tell people later. What else should it include? Here are some key points. First, CSE must focus on consent and respect and healthy relationships. Second, it should cover gender norms and stereotypes. Research shows that curriculum that is focused on gender issues and power dynamics are five times more effective at reducing the rates of sexually transmitted infections and unintended pregnancy than curriculum that ignore gender. Third, it must include peer pressure, bullying, harassment, gender-based violence and lastly it must educate on the use of digital sexual communications and on the availability of porn our government is reviewing the school sexuality education as part of the gender equality review I urge the government to be bold to be bold in its review and implement a comprehensive sex education program for all schools based on best practices and we have this document from the UN and WHO to start off us to start us off. If we don't get this right, the default educator is porn, which our young boys are already assessing at 13. We are failing our kids if we don't provide these critical life skills that they need to navigate. Their sexualized world. And parents who are not comfortable with their children going through a more comprehensive program should be given a chance to opt out. But they should not hold back the education of the next generation of kids. To implement CSE, we must invest in training CSE teachers who are able to adopt an empathetic, sensitive, and non judgmental approach to sex education who understand youth culture and are gender informed. A final note on promoting gender equality in schools. There are lots of opportunities to educate our youth on this, not just through the sex ed education program or the character and citizenship education program. It can be included in literally every subject. Here are some ideas and let me show you something. This is a delightful and educational book called Awesome Women. It is produced by the Singapore Council of Women's Organisations, and it is full of stories and illustrations of famous women scientists, activists, artists, entrepreneurs, and a whole bunch of other outstanding Singapore women. So this book can be used by arts teachers, science teachers, history teachers, to inspire kids about the women who broke barriers and made history. For English, maybe you could have a debate between kids on women are the stronger sex, and perhaps for CCE a project to interview family members and friends about how they have experienced gender roles and expectations in their lives. If our teachers are gender trained, the possibilities for stimulating young minds to learn about gender in the real world are endless. And once the kids see the inequalities, they will naturally work towards fixing it. So the starting point is to include gender education in our teachers' training program. And when teachers get it, the rest will follow. If we are to make gender a fundamental value in Singapore, we need to train our educators about gender and encourage them to build this into their class activities. Let this be in the government's white paper on gender equality. We are reaching the end of the lecture series. What a journey from the 1950s till today. What does the future hold for us? More than ever, I am hopeful, excited about the future of gender equality in Singapore. Here's why. Game changer number one. Inspired by hashtag MeToo, women speak up and change systems. Hashtag MeToo changed the world, Singapore included. Its ripples of change created further ripples as women spoke up publicly against their perpetrators and systems that allowed perpetrators to get away too easily. Here are two of the cases where public complaints led to major systemic changes. The first, Monica Bay's Instagram post about NUS's mishandling of her voyeurism Caused NUS to review and revamp its harassment policies and processes and to train its staff and student leaders. The second national hurdler, Kirsten Ong's complaints about Sports SG handling of her case, contributed to Sports SG creating a new framework on managing harassment in sports. These public cases are just the tip of the iceberg but hashtag MeToo shifted the whole iceberg for good and it's still shifting. So calls to AWARE's sexual assault care centre rose sharply after hashtag MeToo. They continue to rise. AWARE's monthly sexual assault first responder training sells out within a day. Young people want to know how to support their friends who have been assaulted. Companies got the memo. Many have invested in initiatives to create more inclusive and respectful workplaces. Men have told me that they have changed the way that they date. And if a woman pauses, for example, they say, OK, I understand. Maybe you're not ready. So they give more space for this. And they listen more. So that's uh, game changer number one. Game changer number two and why I'm excited. I talked about fatherhood in the second lecture and how dads in Singapore are becoming much more active fathers. Fatherhood brings out the gentler and more emotional natures of men. That's why it's so important for equal parenting leave. It not only helps women, it goes a long way to reduce toxic masculinity. Let me just share this one quote with you by Michael Kaufman, the founder of the White Ribbon Campaign, the Canadian campaign which went global, where men take a stand against violence. He said, the transformation of fatherhood will be for men what feminism has been for women. It is the thing that is redefining our lives in in a powerful, life-affirming, forward-moving way. Like many others who started with work to end violence against women, Kaufman sees fatherhood as a very positive way of liberating men from their prisons of masculinity and a way of reducing violence against women. Game changer number three, the government's current gender equality review with the ambitious and inspiring aim to imprint gender equality deeply into our collective consciousness, promises to be a game changer. As I said in my first lecture, the ground is so ripe for this and the government is doing the right thing at the right time. Today, we celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Women's Charter. This was our first major breakthrough in the women's rights movement of Singapore and I hope that one day we will look back and celebrate the gender equality review as a historical event the moment of pivot when Singapore started to embrace gender equality and never looked back on my part I have come up through these in these lectures with many ideas to take the conversation to the next level and to provide a path, a vision for gender equality in Singapore. I commit to do whatever I can to support the work of the Gender Equality Review. I promised a toast in my first lecture to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Women's Charter. To all of you who care about and continue to work on this issue in your families, schools, workplaces, and society, cheers to the next 60 years. Let's continue to fight the good fight for a more caring society for Gender Equal Singapore. Thank you.
2: Hi everyone and thank you so much for tuning in to this lecture and also for staying with us um, all the way. And now it's time for our question and answer segment with Karina. Thank you for all your questions and also um, there's been a lot of engaging discussions going on on uh, our Facebook comments. So please keep that going. We need to keep the conversation going, right Karina?
0: Yeah, this is the start.
2: <laughs> well, thank you Karina for that uh, really insightful lecture. Um, I thought you know, it really brought the three lectures to a close very nicely because you dealt with some really deep Uh, core issues of gender equality. Um, Really, really privileged to be here and to be part of this conversation. And I think while Singapore is, you know, at this point in time, is going through a really difficult time, uh, so is the rest of the world. But these are really important and necessary conversations to have, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, what is the kind of nation that we want to emerge in a post-COVID world? And as much as it takes collective effort, to work on the pandemic and to overcome the pandemic, it also takes that collective effort around gender equality. So I guess um, my first question to you is, you know, you talked so much about um, so many policies that we need to put in place and very, very um, um, good suggestions that you've put forward today. Now, while we wait for that to happen, and the gender review is coming up later this year, anybody who is watching this, and since there's a big focus on men today, any individual that is watching is whether you're a, uh, and you talked a little bit about fathers just now, whether it's your son or a, a husband or a brother uh, or a partner, what can you do to help move the needle towards
0: um, gender parity? Yep. So, and we can probably take a lot of uh, cues from how women have done it in the past, which was, you know, women started as just reflecting on their own situation in small groups and thinking, this is rather unfair, right? Uh, and why why is the situation like this? So I think first is a reflection for the men who actually want to do something about it to think, well, in my sphere, what can I do if I care about something like this? And I think many men, especially I've heard men who are fathers of daughters, right? And they're like, I want this world to be a better place for my daughter. And then they start to do things in their workplaces for example because they're inspired. I'm like, you know, they want the world to be a better place for when their daughter grows up. So they start with whatever they can do. So some could be if they are leaders in their workplace uh with just making sure that they are they don't have this un- unconscious bias or they are made aware of this. So they get training, they talk about it, they have new policies to deal with harassment, etc. So in the workplace, and this has been great, right, it is very difficult for any one person or even a few people to change the way that they are when the rest of the group is really making it very difficult. If they speak up, they are going to be ostracized. They are going to lose their social capital. So it has to be that the environment has to actually say, we don't like this kind of behaviour. We, as a workplace, we want to have respectful workplaces, Mm. right? That's why shifting uh, structures and organisations will help. We can't expect this work to be done just by individuals, right? Uh, The calling out is too difficult. Now, of course, let's just take the men's WhatsApp group. And I've been thinking about that, like, you know, what could men do when they are in a situation which is a private group? Um, I think that if there's one person, one guy there, who's feeling uncomfortable about things, there are probably other men who are, except no one is saying anything. So you could have um, side conversations with someone else to say, hey, you know, that thing that was just circulated, I feel uncomfortable about it how do you feel so you don't have to expose yourself to the whole group but you're sort of doing a sensing right see whether or not other people are and then when they are sort of critical mass and critical mass is usually 30% you can do something hmm. or maybe exit the group or but then you this group might be helpful for you so this may not be a good idea or just have drinks with the person who is sending and then you know just without calling the person out in a group situation making the person lose face before you know his his peers this could be other ways right um, I've said that the family situation about kids is very easy to to show affection to kids right but the Asian family and I learned this uh, from a someone who works with uh, men who have addictions to sex and porn. Uh, and one of the things that he shared with me is that the Asian family seems to be quite a cold, unaffectionate sort of family. Uh, the norms are, you know, husband and wife, you may not see them even hold hands. And actually, that is not so good for the kids. They need to actually have that connection. Boys need to see men connect with women. So it's not just about being affectionate to your kids. It's about being um a loving person yeah. and not being afraid to show that. So my dad, for example, was kind of aloof, cool, because he was uncomfortable. Right? So it was awkward. Uh until his his last ten years. And then all that dissolved. And I'm, and I'm sure many I people
2: like, can relate to that. Yeah. Well, you
0: know? So you know If you can, just take these small steps with your own family, and it might go some ways. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I think um, that's the thing, right? I mean, you want, especially with your kids, you want to show them, right, that it's okay to have affection and it's okay to show love. Yeah. You know, and it's also also okay to show when you're uncomfortable or when you're unhappy.
0: Yep. And boys learn that first role model is the father right and how the father is which is why it's quite hard for 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 men today because many of the men that I interviewed their fathers were very distant mm-hmm. either they were working very hard and sometimes not even in the same country mm-hmm. or they were emotionally distant right because they also had fathers who had dis, were distant so you know that's sort of an evolution of how fathering is supposed to be so many of the fathers today if they had dads who were distant, they might become that kind of dad. But understand that your son is looking at how you are mm. and that you may be feeding his brains with this kind of an image of how fathers should be, which is kind of, uh, you know, a more distant and maybe more about discipline or more about advice or more about schoolwork, right? So I think that... Uh, fathers can really sort of think about this and about how put yourself in the uh, shoes of your kid how do you think they are seeing you as a person and how you are treating your wife and the kids Um, there's also in terms of I'll stop there but yeah because there might be other things about boys and all of that which is quite interesting um,
2: a lot more that we can talk about right and I just want to get to the question. um, And of course, this has been quite a hot topic on Mm. Facebook as well, on National Service. Uh, We have a question from Wan Wanshian Tan, who is asking, what's your opinion on women who go through childbirth, do housework, and take care of families? And wouldn't asking them to do NS pose as an additional burden for them? We've had quite a few responses to that.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, NS is one of those things that I knew we need to talk about it, exactly what the final solution is. I'm not sure. For example, uh, for, I, I think if it's like uh, the woman is already has kids, she's a mom already, then to ask her to do NS at that time, that's a bit much. Yeah. Right? But for women who aren't, and I'm thinking that NS uh, will be when people are younger age. I don't think that it is um, if, if men can do it, Right? Uh, I would say that women too. And it is not just about, uh, it's national service. And I I don't want to think of giving birth as national service, right? Uh, That idea is, uh, to me, not the right idea, right? Thinking of it that way. And we have to think about, there's giving birth. But right now, the problem is that who's taking care of the child? It should be both parties. It should not be the woman's role, and this is where the problem is. So when do we do this? Right, it's a bit chicken and egg, but we really should be socializing the idea that both men and women can do national service. Both men and women are equal parents. They are. They have equal responsibilities. They can choose to uh, divide up roles the way that they want, but they are equally responsible for the care and the caregiving of the kid right so i can understand why people were like oh isn't that asking a lot of women mm. um but also and yes it is today because women still do twice the amount of of housework and caregiving that men do
2: and it's also not seeing it that the women's role is to have children as well right yeah that's the other thing about like, gender. It's not Ma- to say... No,
0: yeah. and many women choose not to now. Exactly. Yeah? Absolutely. Now, um,
2: Let's talk a little bit, uh, going back to the idea of patriarchy uh, versus yep. matriarchy as well. We have a question from Marcus Lowe that uh, says, why would men work towards uh, creating a patriarchy that works against men? Uh, furthermore, doesn't a matriarchy, uh, for example, some Peranakan households, tend to regress into tyrannical hierarchies
0: as well? Oh, I am not so familiar with the Peranakan households, Um, but the idea of the patriarchy, right, it is not men from the stories I shared, which is why I shared the stories. Mm -hmm. When you look at the lives of men, uh, if you can't connect or not allowed to connect to your own feelings, I think that is such a huge cost to pay as a human being why would you know and when i think about my dad's life which is why it saddens me so much and as a young person i didn't know how to reach out to him and even as an older person i feel like he did most of the reaching out in the last 10 years because i was just kind of stiff right so but yeah it is such a huge cost to pay for men to benefit from the patriarchy. Um, And so, yeah, I think men have to choose. But look at all the downsides of it, Mm -hmm. the crime rate, all of that. You know, we've never thought of this as a men's problem. Mm -hmm. But it is, Mm -hmm. because women don't commit crimes and have substance abuse in the same way. Mm -hmm. So if we start to really think about it, um, I think that men might see that They have a lot to lose in a patriarchy yeah Yeah, absolutely
2: and we're not just talking about patriarchy I think there was a comment that was made it's not about saying oh you take away patriarchy therefore you put a matriarchy in there it was you're talking about a gender equal world and uh, this is one of the comments that were made right and I mean at the end of the day it's looking at how it has also like men have a role to play in the entire gender conversation, right, which is yeah. something that we've always talked about. I think about. the
0: idea is just that no one should be restricted to their roles, yes. you know, and when you think about girls, you're like, oh, you know, my dad said, like, you know, I, as a girl, I can be anything I want to be, and girls have that freedom. They, the boys don't have that same freedom, right? Yeah. For me, the, the policing, the, con- the the masculine norms are way more restrictive for mm. boys. So I asked a, just for fun, I just put out a question, uh, asked a where to put out a question on today's age, would you prefer to be uh, uh, a boy or girl, right? A man or woman? And um, interesting, it was kind of 50-50. NS was the only one where some women said, aside from NS, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I would prefer to be a man. And some people said "Man, because they're more privileges. Mm. But many people said, I want to be able to feel and cry and all of that. Mm. You know, this is very important. It's part of being human and we, we deny that it's a huge cause. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good that those men actually recognise
2: that um, it comes with privileges being a man. So they obviously acknowledge it as well. right? I mean, so it's something that we have to do, like you say, as a society to change that. Yeah. Yep. Um, also on the topic of toxic masculinity, uh, we have a question from Janessa C. She asks, uh, do women have a part in contributing to toxic masculinity too. Uh, Some women um, say that they are sexually attracted to men who are more masculine in their behaviour and how can our society shift to allow men to be whatever
0: they are? For for sure this is not just the the peer influence which I focused on is huge Mm. but for sure women are also part of the problem yeah. of this, right? It is not about men or women. It is about uh, a patriarchal norms that are in society, mm. which are nested in our heads and in every social interaction that we have with a man or with a woman. There's often that, right? So uh, women who tease men about being uh, too effeminate mm-hmm. um, they are part of the problem, yep. right, that is going to make it difficult. So, yeah, we, we have to have this conversation. It starts with personal reflections, and there is a feminist mantra that I really like, which is the personal is political. You want to make change, you sort of start looking at uh, your, you know, what is your situation. And so I think we all have a part to play, and women are definitely part of, of this which comes back to your earlier point as
2: well, right? I mean, as much as it is hard sometimes for an individual to do something, that self-reflection is also very important because individuals do play that role and then we need then the bigger structures to then be put yes. in place. Yes, so the personal corporate. is
0: political and it is about the political structures, yeah. right? So if if NS is currently the way it is, right? Yeah. If our paternity leave situation is the way it is, uh, all of that is making it difficult yeah. for people to make those personal changes as well.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? So Absolutely. to me, it starts with, that's why I said, teach the teachers. Mm. Right? Yeah. And then it will flow. I, I, I think that kids understand this instinctively. Right? Mm. When they see the injustice, then they're like, yeah, why, why can't I do this too? Yeah. Right? They will call it out. Right? We just need to give them that uh, knowledge. I just have a
2: question on sex. Uh, sexuality education that is not here but i'm just going to ask it yeah. to you um, since you talked a little bit about teachers now we all often hear this right but if you talk about it you're going to be encouraging it so i think right Corina, we need to put this to rest today yeah you know especially when it comes to sexuality education mm. um,
0: you know the idea of when you talk about it you're encouraging it mm. what do you have to say to that Um, So the UN document that I spoke about, the Technical Guide to Sexuality Education, is 2018. And they did a massive review of all of the evidence on this, right, and said, came with a very clear conclusion. Comprehensive sex education um, actually delays first sex, uh, results in kids having less sexual partners, as well as practicing more safe sex, so in fact, this is the way to get to to those uh, things. And and they didn't, kids didn't actually have more sex earlier. Mm. This has been our experience as sex ed trainers in international schools. We do surveys before and after, mm. and you know the kids are really quite thoughtful about uh, once they know. Okay, these are. That this is a, a a a question that and that they have to be, uh, some they are empowered to think for themselves. These are all the considerations. Mm-hmm. Many of them actually will then come to the conclusion that I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. I'm just not ready, and so not this, not now. Maybe uh, two years down, I don't know. But they actually know when they are they are or not or are not ready, yeah. right? Of course, we say, take, speak to your parents. If you're religious, you need to take into, those, into account those considerations. Um, but yes, the kids actually, very impressively, they can make this decision. We're talking about older kids, right? Mm. Not the young kids, the, the older kids above, uh, above 14. Because you're given an opportunity 15. to express, right? They're given
2: yep. an opportunity to talk about issues they might be thinking about yes. or they're afraid of.
0: yes. We need to open up that space for them. Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, I have a question
2: here about the Me Too uh, movement for, from Resvin, and I'm sorry if I got your name wrong, Resvin Kaur. Uh, the Me Too movement has been a net positive that is encouraging women to speak out and report sexual harassment. However, it seems to promote a trial by social media without any due process that establishes their guilt. Perpetuating a guilty until proven innocent culture. What are your thoughts on this? And is there any way we can mitigate this without undermining the good that the Me Too movement has done?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one, right? Because yeah. the social media was the way that people without power could actually call things out, right? So that is the good thing. But there is that side of it, which is it is. Uh, trial by, what was it, what was the word? Um, trial, by, uh, uh, by media? Tri- trial by social media. By yeah. social media, yeah, yeah there's that. Um, I don't really know what to do about it. I did think in the course of uh, coming out with these lectures that Singapore might do well with something called an apology law. Okay? Mm. An apology law is interesting because a lot of the times I see that, uh, not just on social media, but other sexual harassment cases that i've come across actually something's gone wrong now that the perpetrator knows that he did or she did something wrong but you cannot apologize because if you apologize you might actually be admitting liability right so that's why a lot of people don't apologize Mm. and uh not that an apology is something that the other party wants in every case. And so the apology law allows people to give their apology without uh, legal uh, liability. It can or cannot or may not be accepted by the other party. Mm. But at least I have a chance, if I really feel remorse and I want to say and do something about it, I can. And it doesn't mean that now I will get a, you know, a lawyer's letter to say, OK, you know, we're taking you to court. Because right? so, that's always the fear. Right. So I feel there must be some uh, more ways than just social media and even the criminal justice system is harsh. There's not, I don't see a lot of ways for rehabilitation in the criminal justice system. Uh, so perhaps we can build that in two. Right, so are there more ways for mediating in the criminal justice system? If someone brings a uh, makes a, brings a complaint, then uh, the police can say can say you know if you want to, you, we we can also uh, see if uh, arrange for a, a mediated settlement, right? Mm. So more of that, and also more of maybe it's not a jail sentence, but we want this person to get treatment, which is also not really available in the current system, right? Uh, something called the mandatory treatment order is not usually used in these in, in these cases. So I do feel there must be a more diverse range of ways that we can deal with these offenses. Uh, the social media one is the one that I, I find yeah, quite it's difficult. Guilty until proven innocent, that that was what it was. I. Uh, I don't know that I see it that way, mm-hmm. but I see that everyone gets very upset mm-hmm. and we're not any closer to, you know, I mean, it may be that Being it's... Being a
2: solution, uh, uh, part of the solution.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, we want this yeah. person to, I mean, we, what, what? Ju- yeah, is that is there a way to get justice? Is that, you know, what people want? That, and the person who is actually um, making the complaint, is also very victimised yeah. by the By the social media correct right it is very polarizing yeah yeah so i don't find uh, as much as you get support you might also get the vitriol yes um and what the you know this highly upsetting yeah so i i sometimes think it's a lose-lose situation it's not a win-lose situation often it's just like lose-lose very seldom i've seen win-win right Mm. so in that sense it's very unsatisfactory I guess just bringing back to something that you said before about the feminist lens, right?
2: I mean, whether it's policy or even the criminal justice system, everything put forward, if you have that feminist lens, yeah. sometimes I think it will change that perspective of policy or whatever it is that you, know, you put forward as well. Yeah. Uh, something that we can also think about building into our, our yeah. systems.
0: I think where uh, there are organisations involved, it's a bit better. Yeah. The hard ones are where you're calling something out And you know it's not in a work situation. Yeah. So at least with the organisations, it's the organisation. There's someone that is in charge of trying to uh, to deal with Mm. this conflict that has arisen, Mm. right? But yeah, social media when everyone is just in the community. Yeah. Yeah. It is the only way to call it out. Yeah. But also, it's like I mean that's your way
2: of saying look this happened, and I need help. Yep. Or I need somebody to... to I'm, I'm trying to speak up. I'm trying to reach out.
0: Yeah. I also think that it's not enough... Uh, people are not sufficiently well informed about mm. these, these areas mm. as to what is right and what is wrong. Mm. Right? So um, sometimes it is that. Mm. I see it as something... You, you've done something to disrespect me. The other person doesn't get it. Right? And then there's sort of maybe sometimes arguing at different levels. Uh, but, you know, this idea that it's not about intention. Many people didn't get that for a long time. Right? We say it's not about intention. It's uh, so long as that person has reasonably felt hurt, then that is a problem. That is harassment. Right? So if you don't understand that concept, you yeah. will feel aggrieved that this person has accused you because you just said, but I didn't intend to hurt you. Mm, Uh, So there's that. I think public education in general would be extremely helpful. Uh, And just moving on from that
2: to this question on penalties for sex crimes uh, from Shermiz Ong. She says that the government recently raised penalties for sex crimes this year. And in your view, is that sufficient? Uh, Or do you think more should be done in punishing and deterring Sexual offenders—something
0: a little bit that you touched on in your pre—in the previous, you know question. what they found is um, it—the—the—the the, the, the punishment has to be adequate. Making it very harsh, unnecessarily harsh has definite downsides. Okay, um, because uh, in our experience doing this work, actually, many survivors. They want some accountability but not necessarily for the for the person to be punished so harshly and if that is what the possibility is they might actually not report okay so, so that's one thing uh, it might deter people from reporting um, what is more important is that when you report that it is taken up and uh, that whole process is way more important, I feel, right? uh, than what the punishment is. Mm-hmm. If people know, uh, potential perpetrators, that there's a really high chance that the criminal system is uh, efficient, it is, you know, uh, they will be uh, taken to task, mm-hmm. um, it's not so much the punishment. And the punishment, I feel, is not even so much. It's a shaming. I think that is the biggest, for for many cases, the biggest punishment, right? The public uh, shaming that there is. So I think that um, the recent changes were great because they made like voyeurism, upskirting, very specific crimes. I didn't look so much at the punishment, which I'm sure is is okay. Um, But it's more about, you know, is the system uh, actually, when you go to the police, they will take up the case. Right, which I think it is, right. and the police have been improving in the way that they deal with these cases.
2: I think a lot of them also just, um, you know, they say that, look, I
0: don't want this to happen to someone else. Yes. And that comes up a lot, right, when people report. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that's why we always say, if that's the case, then just report, mm. right? Because even the police calling up someone can be a very good deterrent. Yeah. Even if the police decide not to proceed with the case, it is still a very good deterrent. The system can be a lot gentler still with the victim. I I still find it. It's you know the whole criminal justice system is just a tough system to have to go through. Yeah. Right. So, uh, but there are things that I feel can probably still be tweaked in order to improve the victim's experience through the system. Right, I think they've done a lot of things at the court level, but you know, just even having to wait one year—you know, one year at least—in where you have to keep telling the story, right? And you know that there will be a day in court. That's a trauma. You can't really move on, right? So the timing and all of this—we've asked for a specialized court, actually. Yeah. So so that um, these cases are treated in a very different way. Mm. It's perhaps fast tracked, and everyone in there. Is gender informed, trauma informed, yeah. right? They yeah. they really know what doing the whole system from beginning to end,
2: yeah. yeah but just relieving the story, I mean, that's trauma in itself for a lot of the survivors, I think.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I just want to move on from that, and I'm getting this begin to wrap up uh, um, thing coming up. But uh, just following from that, somebody has asked uh, Mandy, um, and I'm just going to put these two questions together: Mandy Chi Man and Arthur. So uh, Arthur Chia. Uh, Mandy asks, in your case study of a boy victim of sexual harassment, you you discussed how masculinity norms caused him not to report the harassment. However, cases of female victims feeling reluctant to report their cases are also found. Do you think there are other major factors apart from masculine norms that are preventing male victims to speak up? And Arthur is asking, how would you respond to powerful and influential leaders who are dismissive of people who talk about gender issues as complainers and maybe if you can take these two together just. Uh,
0: the second question I'm not sure uh, of but let's, let's deal with the first yeah, question yeah. Right. Uh, I think that for men and women it's just really hard to, to complain about these things yeah. right? there's a lot of stigma and yes. there are norms that prevent women and there are norms that prevent men I don't know, I can't say that one is more difficult than the other, but therefore the men... um, I think that it is actually... uh, We just don't think so much about these things, but there's the whole thing about... Firstly, he was not told. He didn't know, right? This is many years ago. Um, And I don't think that men and boys get the same kind of advice about Things that could happen to you as a boy, yeah. right? As girls do in 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 relation to sexual assault, right? So that's one, right? They don't get as much attention uh, in these areas. Two is the whole thing about yeah, you are supposed to just suck this up,
2: yeah, right? Just be a man. Just and be a man. Yeah.
0: Then there is the homosexuality thing. Just like present yourself in a heterosexual way. What does it mean right when you, you go and you say this happened to me that someone did this to me yeah. so there are those and but with the women it is it is a lot of other norms yeah. that we've been talking about a lot yeah. uh so you know victim blaming is a lot of it is huge yeah. it's really huge so there are you know i just chose to focus this lecture on men even though there are a lot of issues i just feel that we know those issues they've come up more i wanted to highlight this because this impacts women right at the end of the day it is like can we just stop sexual assault can we just stop that in order to stop that we have to work with men but we have to support women through all of the stigmas the victim blaming you know all of that that they are facing right that work has to go on and aware will continue to do it, right? But someone needs to work on the men's piece. <laughs> which is like not us, but you know, how can we support someone else to do yeah. it? Yeah, it has to be done. and I'm, I'm hoping after this lecture some uh, yeah. a group
2: of people will step up to do this. Yeah, me
0: too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure and, you've you know, and with a sort of more it. feminist lens. Yes, absolutely. Right? Uh, so I I call out to the community everywhere, right, that we we need to do this work in order to, to shift. Um, What was the second question? So the second question
2: is about on leaders um, who, for example, when you talk about uh, they're saying, uh, she was saying that, uh, he was saying, sorry, that you know, some people, some leaders might say, "Oh, if you're talking about all these issues, issues, you're actually just complaining about it." And maybe, you know, beyond that question, this maybe could be a call to leadership as well. Whether leadership um, in government, leadership in organisations, in educational institutions, you know, what do you want to say to leaders? You know, who people come up to you and say, you know, these are issues that are happening, you know, these are, um, you know, something that's going on in our institution, or these are policies that you need to change. Um, you know, and not to dismiss it, but to say that, you know, and to have the mental state of mind to say that, look, it's something that affects our life in more ways than we can imagine and something that we need to do about.
0: Yeah, I mean, those... I, I, my difficulty with the question, it seems a bit abstract, mm-hmm. but uh, of course, good leadership would not just sort of, you know, be dismissive of yep. these things, right? I mean, so it's a bit hard to uh, to process that. Yeah. Was was it in relation to sexual assault? Um, no. It was
2: probably just about. Uh, it was about uh, on on. I think leaders dis- well, this question has disappeared somehow. But on leaders dis- uh, dismissing um, people talk about uh, issues as complainers. So I guess my my follow up question from that is, and you know, just to wrap things up as well, is, do you have any a message for leadership in government, in educational institutions, in corporates uh, when it comes to Gender equality to moving um, our society towards gender parity?
0: Right. Um, I think that if people understood uh, gender, like, you know, and I've, I've tried to use these lectures to also provide some education on this why uh, men and women behave differently not because they were born differently, but it's all about the experience that they've had, and how supportive environments can bring out the best in men and women. If we have that focus of what can we do to bring out the best in our boys and girls, men and women, understanding that gendered experience that they live through, Uh, I think that would be the way forward, right? Uh, So I hope that there will be... That gender education becomes a part of schools. That is the way forward. Hmm. And then for all the adults, you know, uh, there's so much that... I learned all this. I'm not trained in this. uh, You know, I didn't go for... I'm a lawyer by training, but yeah, you can you can definitely pick all of this knowledge uh, up, right? Just by engaging and doing the work. Doing the work, that but you've also done with AWARE. yeah, you know, be an aware member <laughs> or just immerse yourself in these uh, in, in in this area and find out more, right? It's it is actually. Yeah, people can can uh, if they want to learn this. Great.
2: Well, yeah. Karina, I just wanted to say thank you. It's been a huge privilege having this conversation with you, and more than that, I want to thank you for all the hard work that you've done <laughs> uh, with the people that you've helped, uh, that have helped you with this, uh, put together these amazing lectures. Um, I think the first ever, and um, and I really seriously hope that the government will take a lot of your points into consideration for our upcoming gender review, which I'm sure all of us are very much looking forward to. Yeah,
0: thank you. I would like to tell, to say to everyone, you know, the gender equality review for me is such a massive opportunity for us to actually say what we want in, in relation to gender equality and where we should go in relation to this. So there are many ways that you can make Your um, ideas and wishes and views known. Uh, There are conversations that are going on both uh, organized by government, Aware has been organizing some as well. You can write in, there's a reach website. I think they are getting a lot of, um, probably a a lot of uh, responses. But yes, It's not going to go on forever. So, please, this is the right time to really get involved, right? And to say, and if you like these lectures, please share it with as many people as possible. I've really tried to push the envelope a little bit further. uh, And some of these ideas are a little bit on the wilder side. Maybe not today, but it's important to plant that seed. And maybe in 10 years' time, it will happen. So, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Karina. Thank thank you you
2: to um, all of you also have been tuning in for our extended uh, uh, question and answer segment. Thank you for your questions. And please keep the conversation going like Karina says, uh, share this lecture and also continue your comments on the site. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Karina. Thank you, Eunice. (laughs) Thank you. And for what you do as well. Well,
1: Thank you. Hi. We have come to the close of Corina's lecture series. I would like to thank Corina for delivering three excellent lectures. Her lectures have demonstrated that gender equality is not an issue of concern to only a few. It is something that concerns every Singaporean um, and indeed perhaps everyone in the world. Um, As it so happens, there was a massive article in the New York Times yesterday on how the global population was declining rapidly and will do so over the course of the next century. Fertility rates are declining almost everywhere, including in the Scandinavian countries, in the United States, even in India, where the TFR is now hovering around two, if not lower than two. In China, the population is set to decline over the next 100 years uh, from 1.4 billion now to around 700 million. There are a number of reasons for this and at the risk of simplifying a very complex subject, one reason is undoubtedly gender inequality. Without exaggeration, one might say the future of the species its very existence may well hinge on gender equality. I would like to thank everyone who's been involved in making this semester's SR Northern lecture series a success, including each of Corina's moderators of the three lectures, as well, of course, as Corina Lim herself. Our next SR Northern fellow will be Ravi Menon, the Managing Director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore. We will announce details of the lecture series soon. But before that, within two weeks, on June 3rd, IPS will have a major conference on gender equality, which will be opened by President Halima Yaakob. Please look out for the details. This will be a wholly virtual conference because of the COVID restrictions. We were to hold it as a hybrid event, but we've had to change our plans and it will now be a wholly virtual event. So please do tune in for the, lecture, uh, for the conference, which will be held on June 3rd. In the meantime, thank you all very much for joining us and attending these three series of lectures. Um, and I think they'll be long remembered. Um, um, uh, for the quality as well as the breadth of the vision that Corina sketched. So everyone, thank you very much for attending and have a good evening ahead.